Instead of just trying to control nature and force it into our little box, here's a crazy thought. What have we learned from it? Because it's been solving many of the problems that we face on a day-to-day -day basis for millions of years. And that is what my guest, Jamie Miller, who I have on the podcast today, and I are going to talk about how to incorporate these principles from nature into designing solutions to all sorts of problems within architecture or social corporate structures. Biomimicry has so much potential to be applied everywhere. So make sure you don't miss out on a single second of this eye-opening episode. You're here for another dose of climate positivity on the Green Business Impact Podcast. Here we highlight the amazing work of green businesses from around the world that are fighting against climate change. If you are ready to be inspired to take action, ready to hear some amazing examples of how we are working to fight the climate crisis, then stay tuned because this week's episode will be the perfect hit of climate positivity. Jamie, do you mind telling us a bit about BH Architects and what you guys do? Sure. So B plus H Architects is an international design firm. We have offices around the world. We do interior design architecture, landscape master planning, landscape architecture, and something called advanced strategy. So it's a wide range of design studios. And like I said, we work in multiple countries and on multiple projects, whether it's healthcare, residential, commercial, we do pretty wide range of design work. That's awesome. And what do you personally do inside of B plus H? Yeah, my title is the director of biomimicry. I'm the first director of biomimicry, I think, in the world in architecture. So B plus H and our parent company, Surbana Jurong, um, are real pioneers in this field. My role is to bring biomimicry to those suite of services that I mentioned, helping apply metaphors and strategies inspired by nature into the design that we do, whether it's master planning and architecture or interiors, I look to the genius of nature to try and make more efficient or more creative or more sustainable strategies for our designers. That's, that's awesome. And so how does biomimicry come into this design process? As if I can, I'd like to do it at the very beginning. What I find is that as we're uncovering what problems we're trying to solve, which designs we're trying to achieve. Right at the beginning, if we could bring in nature's metaphors and nature's principles, it seems to have a greater response in terms of the direction that we're going to go in that design. If I come in later past conceptual design in more detailed design, it becomes much more difficult for me to bring in metaphors because the concept is already set. The mindset is already set. What's exciting about biomimicry is that it invites us to explore a set of principles that are often different than the ones that we're used to. So having it come in at the early stages allows the whole team, even the clients to engage in this different way of thinking, looking at strategies, looking at problems in a different light and diving into this exploration of nature's way of solving those problems. The idea with biomimicry is that nature's been refining design for billions of years. And they're often solving very similar problems that we face. And so if we can learn from those time-tested ideas and those strategies, we might come up with, like I said, more creative, efficient, and sustainable solutions. Completely agree. Can you give us an example of something you've been able to implement in a recent project? Sure. So a lot of my time last year is focused on master planning. And the reason I focus on master planning is because I believe that the most cost-effective way for us as a species to mitigate climate change is to let nature be, to learn how to design within it, or to learn how to let nature into our 
communities, into our master plans, into our urban environments. There, it's more of something called systems biomimicry. And what I mean by that is there's three levels of biomimicry, copying nature's form, copying nature's processes, and co copying nature's systems. To give you an example, this is copying nature's form. It's an impeller that looks like that spiral you'll see in seashells, in sunflower seed packaging. Copying this shape has made an impeller that is much more efficient at mixing fluids. But at the systems level, it's more about reframing our context of human nature interrelationships or interactions. So this is a bit of a philosophical dive, but for hundreds of years, we've been designing, and I say we as a generalization, but the majority of our urban designs are based on this assumption that humans are separate from nature. You can see that in how we build cities. Any nature that comes in is very engineered, it's manicured, it's resisted, it's cut down, it's thrown pesticides on it. Another assumption is that nature exists for human consumption. And again, that and how we manufacture. We use nature as a resource. We extract it and we use it for lumber, materials to build our cities. And then another assumption is that we design in an effort to resist nature. So we build robust communities. We fight 100-year storm events. We want static interior temperatures and climate control. So these assumptions have made us very different from the rest of the natural world. So at a systems level biomimicry, what I'm trying to do is shift those lenses and say, okay, how does nature become a part of our design strategy? And the way that we do this practically is the first step we do in our master plans is ask, what does nature want to do? What will nature support us in doing? And what will nature permit us to do on this landscape? If we were to not step foot on this land, where would nature go? And if we know that, if we can understand that, then we can place infrastructure and designs in a more strategic way. We can put things where nature's not going to fight us and we're not going to fight nature. We could leverage the existing ecological services. Nature's sequestering carbon. It's managing storm events. It's creating soils and agriculture. So we want to leverage that. So the master planning strategy that we use is called the living story of the place. And we start by understanding and mapping those things that I mentioned. What does the land want to do? What will it support us in doing? And what will it permit us to do? And we do that in an effort to save costs and to improve resilience. As I said, our key phrase is, it's expensive to fight nature. And so within this methodology, we believe that we are a part of nature, humans and our designs. We go beyond this idea of trying to do less harm and we design systems that are a contribution to their place. We believe that humans and nature are not separate and we don't try and fight nature. Like I mentioned, we try to work with nature harmonically. And then the, the other assumption I mentioned is we don't see human and nature as something to consume for material resources. But instead, we see it as something that could teach us. So in our master planning, it's that systems biomimicry where we're adopting new assumptions for how humans and nature can interact. And the intention is to build harmonic systems so that nature and our designs work together, work collaboratively. And I guess the last thing I'll say is we believe beyond this idea that, that we're a bad species. So a lot of people design to do less harm. And our idea is not to design for less harm. It's designed to be a contribution because our breath feeds the trees, our bodies feed the soil. What if our buildings could feed the ecosystem? So we're always mm -hmm. in the mindset that humans are a part of our natural environment. And so are our designs. How do we design in a way that can support that. Wow. That, that I really like how you said that. How can we contribute? How can our designs contribute to nature? Because that is such a different perspective from what a lot of people think of. Because you think of you're going out and building different 
things on the landscape and you're changing the landscape and how can we really design that? Because you think about a beaver, when they build a beaver dam, they completely change the entire ecosystem, but they become this keystone species for the entire ecosystem because of the fact that they create a pond for lots of different species and a, a nursery for many species to grow and survive in that wouldn't be able to survive if the stream just was let to run. Sure. But now that we have this pond there because of the beaver, they are benefiting so many other species. So looking at how we can become an asset to that ecosystem, that is huge. I love how you pointed that out. And to add to that, so those are ecological engineers. Buffalo is another example. Bison, we're working on a project with the Métis Nation of Alberta with a 680-acre property where there is bison on the site. And so we're learning from the bison, how do we regenerate this land? Because bison will knock trees down, they'll knock the aspens all over the place, and people think that's destructive. But it actually, and they'll chew up the seeds of the grasses. But the way that they work is they create conditions conducive to more life. And I think that's the key part of our philosophy and biomimicry is everything that we're doing, we're trying to emulate nature. And one of the key things that nature does is when left alone, it creates conditions conducive to more life. So if we can have that as our metric, if that's our design standard, then we're going to be moving beyond this idea of less harm. And I'll mention, I truly believe that we can do that. I think a lot of us believe that humans are an innately destructive species, but I don't see us that way. Janine said this to me that we're not a bad species. We're just a very young one. And so I see us more as like childlike. We're still learning how to dance on this property of ours or this land. And we're using pretty rudimentary thinking. So nature is the ultimate model and measure. And there's studies that show forests and ecosystems that were engaged with by indigenous people are healthier than those ecosystems that were not engaged by indigenous people. So there are quantitative studies to show that humans can dance with nature in a way that both can benefit, that we can thrive and strive for more biodiversity. So yeah, I don't see us as a bad species. And that's the mentality I'm espousing. I agree with that because I think about, I used to be a camp counselor. And so I'd be working with kids and we'd be outside and playing. And some of the kids, they have this mindset. I think that comes a lot from like being indoors where it's, oh, there's a spider, I've got to kill it. And it's, whoa, <laughs> like the spider has every right to live out in the outdoors like they have every right to live just as much as you do you don't have any reason to kill it yeah. and you don't have to control it or, or do anything to it just let it be it's not gonna hurt you <laughs> he's way more afraid of you than you are of him so yeah. getting us away from this idea that nature is scary nature is like this place that we have to control That's and, right. and getting into this place of like, how can we work nature? How can we be able to adapt to how nature naturally builds up? I think that's such an important concept that we definitely need to mature into. Like you were saying, right. the maturity aspect, like we have to teach our kids that, hey, like when bugs are outside, they deserve to live just as much as you do. And as a species, I think we need to mature into this idea that, hey, we don't have to control and manicure nature. We can grow with it. We can be an asset. And I think that's super important. One of the things I studied in my research, because I was curious why humans became so different from the rest of the natural world. And so that's where I, I learned about these paradigms and these assumptions. And what was interesting is that the root of all of this is a very basic psychology and a very basic kind of physiology 
in that nature to us is complex. It's unknown. And it always has been, and it still is, if we're honest with ourselves. And that and complex- is scary. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's rooted in an ultimate fear of the unknown. It's why we are afraid of death and getting fired and getting broken up with, because we don't know what's beyond that. And so our brain is hardwired based on trying to be efficient. It's hardwired to make assumptions. It's hardwired to make things that are complex, simple. And Newtonian science gave us such a great platform to do that with. So us engineering our environment allows us to go away from that complexity, that unknown of nature and make more predictable environments so that we can assume that our walls are going to stay up or that the water in our tap is going to stay clean. All these assumptions that we take for granted are rooted in this fear of the unknown. And ultimately, in the way I see it, it's the fear of the complexity of the natural world. Definitely. It, that is always scared. That's why we try to control it and all exactly. those things. Because it's just, it's so scary, so unknown. And oh no, what are we going to do? So yeah, I completely agree with you there. So what, what originally drew you into trying to incorporate these pieces of biomimicry into your work and into what you do? So my story really began in 2004 when I was an engineering student. And when I was being taught engineering, they're teaching me a particular way of doing it. And the whole time I was like, man, there has to be another way. There has to be more creative solutions. It can't just be pipes, bridges, roads, and buildings like this. <laughs> it, there has to be more creative ways to think about it. And then I took a, an elective called math and poetry. And it was an hour and a half of math and an hour and a half of poetry. And in the math section, we were uncovering math theorems. And the professors were brilliant at making us believe like we were uncovering these theorems for the first time. And one of them was called the Fibonacci sequence. And it's a sequence of numbers that you may be familiar with, but when you play with them, you can get this spiral. And the professor asked us, where have we seen that spiral before? And that's when all of a sudden we thought, oh, waves crashing or the packaging of sunflower seeds or pine cones or in our ears and our skin, the way that the universe is expanding from Big Bang, this spiral is ubiquitous in nature. And that was a kind of a trigger point for me to realize that all this time I had been spending my energy using math and science to engineer the environment, when in fact, math and science could teach me about the environment and how it designs. And so I went on this obsession, I'd say. I haven't done anything other than biomimicry since then. First, learning the methodology. I worked with Janine Benyus, the woman who popularized the term biomimicry. And she taught me the basic principles. She taught me the methodology. She taught me really the foundation of what I know. But then I started to teach it at OCAD University. I applied it in my master's. I began to work with more indigenous elders and indigenous communities who gave me a very interesting perspective on biomimicry. Because as one of my good friends and elders said to me, when she found out what I did, she said, we've been doing biomimicry for thousands of years. And so this whole evolution, I've been learning these tools. And then I did a PhD in engineering that focused on systems level biomimicry and urban resilience. And then it, at that point, I was like, okay, this is a lot of learning. And the big barrier I'm seeing in the field is that it's not applied enough. And so that's when I created my company, Biomimicry Frontiers, with the single purpose of applying biomimicry. And then I became the director of biomimicry because of that, because an architect firm that I worked with was inspired and wanted to be leaders in the field. That's the, the genesis of my biomimicry passion. And it's so exciting because like I was saying to a class this morning in India, my job will never end because I'll never know all the secrets of nature and I'll never know how to apply them all. And we as a species won't know how to apply them all. So it's a it's an unending job, which is gives me motivation every morning. There's no end in sight. So it's like, what can we learn today? What can we apply today? What can we move? And that excites me incredibly. What is something that you recently learned that would just really sparked your interest? This is something I'm really interested in is hair. 
there's hair on weeds, there's hair on leaves, there's hair on animals. And I'm just curious about hair in general as like a anti-friction or like rain capturing device. But the thing that I don't know how it applies is learning that spiders, spiders fly using the electromagnetic forces of the planet. So they will use their silk, somehow connect to the electromagnetic forces of the planet and fly hundreds of miles offshore. I find this fascinating. Really? Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know how that's going to that. apply. Yeah. Well, wow. actually, I just spoke to Air Canada two weeks ago for their Earth Day event and we brought this up. It was like, what if planes in the future are using electromagnetic forces to fly? Yeah. I don't know. Wow. Uh, just something that's fascinating <laughs> to me. That's almost like the whole like superconductors and how they can like float and just yes. like over the magnets within the yeah. rail line. And so you just tap it. It's like cool. super fast. Like, I I just imagine it being something to that extent, but that's amazing. Wow. That's really cool. And how much do you see biomimicry taking shape in the marketplace as a whole in terms of design and architecture? Do you see it becoming more popular with more places or where do you see it right now? Yeah, I think this is one of the most exciting times for biomimicry. We're seeing exponential growth in research, development, and investments. I've been tracking biomimicry technologies for 20 years and to see the growth in patents and, and valuations. Like one of my companies, they just got valued at 2 billion. They're called APL Science. And they copy the skin of fruits to make hilariously a better skin for fruits so that its shelf life can last longer. There's an expected, I think, $1.6 trillion in global output on biomimicry-based technologies. So at the technical level, we're seeing incredible advancements. And then at a larger, more systemic level, we're seeing architects and designers and engineers apply this. And it's a struggle. I will admit people struggle to understand how we can do it and how it can be inexpensive. And what I say to them is that the only barrier to biomimicry is creativity. It is a bit of a paradigm shift. It is a disruptor to the status quo because it's banking on assumptions that are different than the ones we've been using for hundreds of years. So it's just a matter of creativity. And, and that's the genius of biomimicry is that it depends on collaboration and diverse collaboration, which is a main driver for why I joined Savannah Jurong and B plus H is I now have access to 16,000 geniuses to call on and say, hey, here's the problem we're working on. Here's an organism. How do we turn that organism's metaphor into a practical, inexpensive application? And to give you a real practical example, I helped design a house in India. And one of the design challenges is how do you cool a large structure? And we looked at barrel cactus. We looked at ant and termite mounds. We also looked at elephant skin. And what we learned is that elephant skin has these cracks in them that when you pour it over with water, all those cracks fill up with moisture. And the cracks create mm. a bit of a protective barrier so that when it evaporates at a slower rate than, say, if it was a flat surf, because if right. the sun hit it, it would evaporate quickly. So those cracks allow the evaporative cooling to take place over a longer period of time. So the animal cools over a longer period of time. And we thought, what if we could apply that metaphor to our wall? And we hummed and hawed and broke it down and realized that we could design a rock facade or like a feature on the wall where we have these, it's very beautiful, but we have these rocks stacked up in a way where they're stable and we hook it up to the rain harvesting system so we could trickle water over those rocks and it acts as the same metaphor. The rock crevices will create a little bit of a protective barrier so it will evaporatively cool over a longer period of time and pull the hot air away from the building. So that's an example. A rock wall costs almost no dollars and it's a fun <laughs> experiment and you could put it strategically in certain areas like on the south wall 
for the Northern Hemisphere and you can have this passive cooling device. So biomimicry doesn't have to be expensive and uh, it doesn't have to be hard. It's just a matter of creativity and working with really diverse thinkers. And would you be constantly flowing water over the wall or would that just be like something you did every once in a while or when it rained or that kind of thing? That's the strategy. You see, us humans love homogeneity. We love things to stay the same all the time. And so you look at our buildings, like we just have glass facades for days. Nature would never do that. It's super resource efficient. It uses information rather than materials. To answer your question, Quickly, it's like, no, we wouldn't do it all day. We would do it at peak sun times or like when we want to offset. This house is also passively cooled through ventilation, copying termite mounds and anthills. We could use it to offset certain areas or certain rooms where uh, it's actually designed near the kitchen where you'd have the stoves going. So it'd be strategic. We'd place it and we'd use it when the time was right. And we could automate it if we wanted. That's the joy of right now is we have access to technologies that we didn't have 20 years ago, which makes some crazy ideas much more realistic. Yeah, definitely. What kind of technologies have you seen lately that you're super excited about? I 40 printing interesting. It's where oh. a 3D printed material changes over time. And within that, there's a woman named Neri Oxman, who you may be familiar with. She's a designer architect who is playing with the relationship between ecology and materials, actually integrating biology into design strategies. So she made a silk pavilion where silkworms were actually part of designing the pavilion. She's made materials that flake off and are fully biodegradable. So imagine the skin of a building that sheds like our hair, like in the summer. Yeah. She's, she also played with materials that have different densities and different moisture content or relationships so that if you put your hand on it, you know, that certain part of the wall will change in relationship to the other parts of the wall. So she's really pushing the boundaries of what she calls material ecology. A lot of it's at prototype level, but she's got an invested interest in seeing that scaled up to architecture and buildings. Yeah. That's super cool to be able to see that the peeling of the building. That's just, wow, that's crazy. I never mm -hmm. would have thought of that before. And you also are working on another project with the biomimicry commons. Do you want to talk to that a bit? Yeah. In my journey of applying biomimicry, I've had a lot of people ask me, okay, how can I apply it? How can I make a job out of it? So I think I'm the first director of biomimicry in the world. Microsoft, I know, has one now. But I think it's been inspiring for people who want to do this as a full-time career. Biomimicry Commons was built out of that desire to see other people create their own companies, their own niches in this field, and to focus on its application. So in it, we've captured pretty much everything I've learned in the last 20 years. We've built it into a course and a suite of platforms where people can learn how to bring biomimicry to their own life. So we have a PDF workbook that is based on the 20 years I've been working in this field. We have a self-paced course. We have mastermind groups, backcountry excursions. But most importantly, all of these lead to a community where a community of people that want to work together and support each other in building their businesses. So it's a bit of an incubator and a disruptor space. So when companies want to have a group of really smart people use biomimicry, you come to the commons and you throw your problem out and have two or three people jump on and give you a medic perspective. So yeah, the commons is a platform. It's for those who want to bring this to life. And I think it has tremendous potential. And I think we're just in our early stages. It's a really exciting time because we're seeing some cool companies come out of it already. And we're seeing some really cool diversity of groups work together. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you have one that came out you want to highlight here? A good question. There's one group that formed in my last mastermind last fall. They didn't know each other, 
beforehand. And then they came together in this mastermind and have built a company helping businesses use biomimicry to improve their own corporate resilience. So it's more of a social strategy than a design strategy. They have corporate experience and they're using principles and examples in nature. For example, ants, which are called superorganisms, they don't have a hierarchical structure. Ants seem to work very efficiently without any top-down management structure. So what principles could we learn from that and bring to the corporate environment to improve corporate resilience or innovation? So this is the kind of thinking that they're bringing. And I think they're onto something. There's a lot of interest in that social realm of biomimicry as well. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I also think of in terms of birds, bird flocks, when they fly, like these flocks of prey species, like pigeons, they'll all flock together and then you'll form these masses of just like birds that are all moving together as one and then they're trying to avoid the hawk that is above right. them trying to take out one of the weakest link there but they all move together and they did a study like with a randomized sample and simulation online where you could actually show that if one bird starts shifting one way then it can actually make right. the entire group and they follow that but it's also just really interesting to see that because like none of those birds in that group are leading That's there's no like birds saying okay we're going to move this right. way now <laughs> yeah. no director is happening but they move all together in this one form and it can thousands of birds doing this yes moving together so it's really incredible to see but I, that just reminded me when you mentioned the ants working together. So I think that's really incredible to really be able to see how you can apply that to human systems and yeah. working together in that way and so that humans can work together more efficiently and more effectively without having top-down model. That would be incredible. And where do you see either B plus H or what you're doing with the Biomimicry Commons? Where do you see this going in the next six months or so? With B plus H, I just got back from Singapore. One of our projects won an award there and I was able to meet with you know, our larger, thank you. Our, yeah, our larger group of companies. And man, did I leave inspired. The amount of genius in a group of companies, the commitment of those people I talked to sustainability. I think it's like in the next six months, I think there's going to be greater partnerships within our group of companies and working on projects that are really pushing the envelope. And then with the Biomimicry Commons, I think we're launching a couple more programs. We're starting to get our groove with our new leader, Lily. Lily Ehrman, she's helped build a lot of biomimicry programs. She helped build the master's program at Arizona State University. So She's taken the lead now and helped drive that, that arm. But I think where I'd like to see the commons gain more traction is in the community building. So we have a good group of people who have gone through and I'd love to figure out how can we foster that environment and really encourage them to build their companies and work together to make it more of that ant colony where there's no hierarchy. Like we can just work together effectively for the greater good. For me, my passion is applying biomimicry because when we apply it, we understand the story. And when we understand the story, we see the genius of nature. And when we see that genius, we let nature be. Like, I just think if we can leave nature alone and figure out how to reintegrate ourselves into it, that will be the most effective thing for our species survival. So it all has a purpose. There's all a reason why I'm doing this, but I'm excited about the potential of both of those worlds, B plus H and the commons. I think it's just keep applying it and keep figuring out how to apply it. Yeah, exactly. Because if you look at regenerative agriculture is starting to come up in a very big way, we're realizing, okay, maybe we shouldn't have just drenched our soil in pesticides and herbicides and all of this stuff. And, oh, hey, that's like a, not a very good thing. And, oh, maybe we shouldn't 
plow the land, even though we've been doing that for since the beginning right. of time, it feels right. like. And it's like, there's so much that we realize now that if we work together with nature, it can be so much more effective. We can have a much more healthier soil that not only captures carbon, but also does right. so many other things that are beneficial to the environment and the biodiversity within the environment. Like, it's just amazing to see that we went away trying to, okay, we have to control it. We have to control it. Oh, we're better than it. Now we're like, oh, maybe we should take a step back and learn from it and see how we can understand what it's doing. Because it's been doing it for a lot longer than we have. If we can just learn from it, it's yeah. so much more effective. And I think that's the power of biomimicry. Things like regenerative agriculture or circularity or passive design or additive manufacturing, all of these ideas that we think we've come up with in the last 20 to 30 years is nature's done it long before us. Nature did it all first. And what's exciting is that nature will teach us what to do next as well. So we'll engage in that conversation. We'll learn about the next trend, the circular economy of 2030. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that going back to that idea that we're just a young species, a friend of mine put it this way. We've been given this work of art, let's say a Picasso, a Van Gogh or Monet, like this planet's beautiful. And we've been asked to add to it, to actually paint on top of it. And for the last couple hundred years, we've been scribbling obnoxiously or just inadvertently or ignorantly. We've just been scribbling on top of it. But there is a place that when we can learn the brush strokes, if we can learn the techniques for how to add to it, when we listen to nature, we can create a more beautiful canvas. We can create more harmony with the built environment. And that's the ultimate goal is to do that. Yeah, definitely. I agree. That's a beautiful comparison there. I really like that. And what would be one suggestion that you might have for another ecopreneur who is on the podcast might be listening to this? What was one suggestion that you would have to help them grow their green business? It's pretty simple. Just anything that you do, ask nature how she would do it, how she would improve it, understand those principles, learn those principles. And I'd say too, with biomimicry, there's a misconception that you need to be a biologist or a designer, an architect. And that's not the case. I'm not an architect. I dropped out of biology in high school. I hated biology. The people that come to the comments, we have dancers, we had economists from Swiss banks. We've had professors. It doesn't really matter. Biomimicry can apply to anything. It's simply just a shift in your lens so that when you're looking at the world, start to question, why do we do it that way? And how would nature do it? So even if I'm looking at a wall, I start to think of skins or tree bark. And what if our walls could breathe and expand and shed and sweat? It's just a conversation that starts with a shift in our perspective. And it's very simple and it's an ongoing conversation. So any ecopreneur out there, um, if you want the most sustainable ideas, the only sustainable model we have on this planet is nature. It's been around for billions of years. And for me, I think the most comprehensive tool for learning from that genius is biomimicry. Engage in that conversation and see what improvements you can make. Yeah, I agree with that. Nature is definitely the most sustainable. It's been around for thousands and thousands of years and knows how to do it. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, learn more about what you do, find out more about the biomimicry commons, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, either through our commons website, www.biomimicrycommons.com or the consulting website, biomimicryfrontiers.com. You can get a hold of us on either of those and you can join our mailing list where we're constantly, not constantly, we don't pepper you with emails. We just give you <laughs> the good stuff when we need. We'll keep you informed on upcoming courses and commons collaborations and things like that. Great. Thank you so much, Jamie, for coming on to the Green Business Impact podcast. It's been awesome having you on to be able to talk about biomimicry and what you are doing to really help us get back to nature, <laughs> understand how we can take principles and 
nature and designed it into everything we do. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And if you enjoyed this interview with Jamie Miller, all about how we can incorporate biomimicry into how we design everything, then I invite you to check out this interview with Project Forest and Mike Toffin, who is planting different tree species and really rewilding many parts of Canada for corporations looking to give back and invest in the environment. So make sure you check out this interview with Project Forest. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Green Business Impact Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing your weekly dose of climate positivity. In a world that constantly inundates you with the negative things happening, it can be great to take a break and hear some great things happening in the world. Make sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to stay up to date with the latest and best interviews of the top minds in the green industries. And if you are interested in launching your own podcast to make an even larger impact on the world, then look no farther than the podcasting platform that I use here to launch every single episode of Green Business Impact, Podbean. I searched through all the different podcasting platforms out there and the best choice by far was Podbean. They give you truly the best value and all the resources you need to spread your message to the world by easily connecting you to all the different podcasting networks like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of them. And they give you so many resources and opportunities to monetize it as well. So if you are on the fence about which podcasting platform to go with, make sure you check out the link in the description below to register your podcast with Podbean. Thanks again, and we can't wait to see you back here next time for another hit of Climate Positivity.